1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from sunny New York City. We are joined today, all from the nation's capital, by uh, the gang including Rosa Brooks in Alexandria, Virginia. How are you today, Rosa?
2: I'm very well, thank you, David.
1: As you can see, I can barely speak. And Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Corey? I'm
0: exceedingly well, thank you, David.
1: Wow, that is uplifting. And Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed? Never been better. That's amazing. <laughs> it's Seriously, how could, how could things get better than this? But, you know, I think, uh, I, you know, one thing I, w- I, I was thinking about is what are we going to do in these podcasts now that there's no foreign policy? I mean, if the biggest story in the world is that a big ship gets stuck in the Suez Canal, and that story is the story for a week. It's, you know, whatever happened to wars and plagues? Well, I guess we have a plague still. It's uh, it's it's certainly been slow in the foreign policy front. Um, I thought today what we might do is hear what's on your minds as you guys are focused on these issues on a regular basis and um, just sort of go to each of you and see what's on your mind. But start with uh, Ed, because I saw Ed, you had a good, as usual, column um, in the Financial Times talking about the kind of international, particularly trade implications of Joe Biden's um uh foreign policy for the middle class so maybe you can talk a little bit about that just to kick us off
3: um yeah uh well thanks thanks for picking up on that david the um uh you know it's it's normally quite difficult to get people interested in trade so i think the fact that you know you can take a picture of it from a drone above a canal in the middle east is very helpful you know suddenly suddenly people understand What happens when there's a a blockage in the flow of trade. We understood that that was
2: a very big ship. I think that was everyone's takeaways. Boy, those ships are big.
1: That was big. Yeah, it's a quarter mile long. Yes. I noticed that it came at Passover and so for the first time since the Red Sea parted, you could actually walk to Israel from Egypt.
2: <laughs> I thought you were going to make a kind of bad pun about how it failed to pass over.
3: No, you could <laughs> hop over tons and tons of fast fashion items that um, that are packed into those crates. Um, the foreign policy for the middle class um, is, I, I, I think, you know, a cynic would say, Biden's way of saying, look, we're going to carry on. Trump's approach to the global economy to trade, um, but we're going to we're going to dress it up um, as uh, being measured by the well-being of people back home. Um, that would be the cynic's approach to it, and the optimist approach, which I think is what Jake Sullivan, who's really the architect of this, would um, put forward, is that look, we've got to. Make people feel secure again in America, and the middle class have got to feel like they 're part of the project again before we can undertake big global economic initiatives, whether it 's trade deals or digital deals or whatever um, and I think we'll wait and see what it really means in practice it 's quite a smart phrase, but as is the case with you know good, good um, slogans there 's often less to it than than you might first think um, but the problem is that if the second half of sort of Biden's great ambitions as president is to reestablish America in the world as a, as a world leader um, and to restore its standing, the first half being to restore the fortunes of the middle class back home. If, this, if that's the second part, the, the American global leadership, then that involves listening to partners and listening to allies and they all want America's economic engagement, um, you know, whether, it, whether it's trade deals, whether it's um, technology standards, um, they, they want some counterbalance to China, which is doing these kinds of things day and night. It's creating investment treaties, trade deals. If you look at America's Asian partners, most of them trade two or three times as much with China as they do with America now. Um, and China's getting more and more dominant every year. And that means it's beginning to set the standards and beginning to, to call the tune. Um, so we can't really afford to wait for that sort of perception to change on the ground in America before America re-engages. Its allies are all asking it to re-engage now. Um, and so foreign policy for the middle class, you know, it's it's a it's a, it's a real puzzle. It's a very important challenge that Biden's setting himself. It's quite a puzzle as to how he's going to manage it. Does it mean he basically does nothing for two or three years globally on the economic front? Or does it mean he takes huge domestic political risks um, by by starting much sooner than that, and thereby opening himself up to the accusation of being globalist? Um, And that whole Trumpian critique, as well as the critique on the left, Um, of being being, um, a president for the multinationals and not for the worker. Uh, And I think the one sort of real hope here is that because he's so aggressive on the domestic front with first of all, this rescue bill and now this massive infrastructure bill that he's going to be able to do both at the same time if he's got the skill and the courage to do so, which is what I hope he does um, because the world's not gonna wait three, four years for America to decide it's got the will to engage again.
1: Um, so let me turn to uh, Corey and then Rosa and get some reactions to what Ed has just said. Um, so I
0: thought Ed's uh, column was fantastic. Thank you. And um, a really smart um, way of understanding that the administration Uh, is at risk of putting its foot in a wolf trap by talking so grandiosely about America being back, but being unwilling to make the difficult domestic policy decisions that um, that we are asking other countries to make. Other weaker countries that have less ability to insulate their interests from China than the United States does, while we at the same time are saying, rejoining the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership is impossible domestically. Um, So so I have two reactions. The first is, Ed's exactly right. It's, um, we are asking other countries that have less ability than we do to confront China, to make hugely brave consequential choices um, without us being willing to. But a second thing I think that Ed doesn't raise in his article that I think is true is that it is not the law of gravity that Americans would not support international trade. If you look at the polling done by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, by Pew, that attitudes have really shifted since 2016. There's a much greater appreciation broadly among Americans about the economic value to us individually, which is the way that the Chicago Council framed the question, um, that trade is good for us. Um, And I think, allowing the dominant narrative to be that it's impossible to get a trade deal through the American Congress, or um, it's impossible, it's suicide for Biden to support international trade. I think it both isn't true and doesn't hold their feet sufficiently to the fire, uh, because Uh, The problem with trade, as you taught me, David Rothkoff, is not that there isn't broad support. It's that the people most affected negatively are disproportionately vocal about it. And so when you move forward with trade deals, you have to be sure that there are compensations for the people who are going to be most um, pungently affected.
1: Rosa...
2: I'm trying to visualize people being pungently affected. Um, I couldn't think of a better word, Rosa. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great turn you of phrase. Uh, this
1: should is have about grown up Corsican in, in
3: New Jersey like I did. Uh, we we, we yeah. were pungently affected. Yes.
2: No, no. It suggests people going like, ooh. <laughs> I was about to say it's about
3: Corsican cheese imports. Yeah. It's when there's a surge <laughs> of cheese imports affected. from Corsica.
2: <laughs> um so i i mean i i basically agree with 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 both ed and Corey on this and i think biden's problem of course is that i mean ed ed you you highlighted the the puzzle in a sense which is that he biden on domestic policy has been quite daring much more radical and big thinking than i think his detractors had expected um i think the you know the 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 complaint about Biden, uh, you know, throughout the primary season was he's boring, he's not a big thinker, he's just more of the same. He's gonna, he's not gonna do anything bold. He's too far to the right. Um, you know, he's just a centrist, and he has be- been behaving not much like a boring, frightened compromiser. He's been behaving like a guy who's not afraid to think big and make real bets and take big risks politically but part of part of what he enables him to do that is he's not actually taking a big political risk with the democratic base you know that that democrats are variously anywhere from thrilled to you know cautiously pleased the only people he conceivably could piss off would be some republicans but frankly you know i think that people Get hit in their wallet in a positive way by what he's doing. So I don't. I don't think he's taking a lot of risks. In, in fact, he's taking risks in the sense that he has departed from sort of Democratic Party dogma in various ways domestically, but he's not taking risks in terms of political climate right now. On the other hand, I think in terms of foreign policy, both in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party's left, there is a tremendous amount of suspicion of globalization, suspicion of trade deals, as you said. So I think he probably feels like he can't afford to act as boldly on foreign policy and particularly not in the in the economics and trade realms, which 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 I, I actually, though, agree with Corey that He's making a mistake um, because the, you know now if ever is the time for him to go for it, whatever he needs to go for, not not only on this, not only on trade issues, but but more broadly in terms of foreign policy, he's he's not no you know there's not a new presidential election for four years. Uh, we're still two years out from the midterm elections. You know this is the moment if you're ever going to take risks to do it. Because and I, th- I think I think presidents basically get two moments. Right? They get they get the moment in the sort of six months or so after they are first elected and they get another, you know, six months or so when they're lame ducks, when they can do whatever they want. And, you know, up in the middle is where things get hard. So I think, I think it would be nice to see him doing more Corian and making that case, which I think is a case that can be made. It's just not happening right now.
1: So I'm going to do something I almost never do, which is slightly disagree with Ed. But.
3: Uh- Maybe um, you uh, should rethink that. I welcome your hatred. <laughs> wow!
2: you pungently disagree?
3: Wow! <laughs> that's, that's a long,
1: slight disagreement to hatred is quite quite a, <laughs> a, quite a leap there. Um, yeah, and,
2: that escalated fast.
0: Yeah, it really
1: did. But it's like
2: that's what things I, are like in the year into the pandemic. Everybody's yeah. kind of fragile
1: yeah right. we 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 got I think it was that was more revealing of how Ed hears the world than, <laughs> than than what I actually said. but and and here's here's where I slightly disagree with it because I think the sort of fundamental thrust I agree with. but I don't think there's any rush. we we're, we're sixty five days into the presidency. Let's, you know, be clear on that. And in terms of the priorities that the president has had, Uh, in terms of whether you're talking about foreign policy for the middle class or the urgent issues that are facing the United States that are most threatening to our power um, and to our prosperity. I think dealing with the American Rescue Plan was the natural and only first step. Um, And I think that if you want to create jobs in an economy that currently has unemployment rates that are equivalent to those that um, we had in the midst of the Great Recession, still, um, then infrastructure is probably the right way to go, particularly if, B, infrastructure is something we've ignored for 50 years, C, infrastructure is something that increases productivity, uh, D, it is something that increases competitiveness um, and uh, stimulates investment in the economy, uh, and uh, also infrastructure in part pays for itself, infrastructure um, helps um, uh, 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 in, in the plans that they're they're talking about, uh, is also paid for to some degree, uh, and furthers uh, a critical foreign policy goal, which is better climate policy if it's green infrastructure. To me, that seems like a very natural next step. And you can't really in Washington... Um, have too many giant initiatives at the same time, although the one that he's got coming immediately on the heels of infrastructure is investing in human resources, again, important in a country that has such a high um, unemployment rate. I think in terms of trade policy, the, 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 the you know Obama administration sort of walked it pretty slow until the eighth year of the administration, which is when they finally pushed for TPP, um, I you know TPP to me sounds like a pretty good idea and is a pretty advanced agreement in terms of uh, labor and I think sooner or later we should uh, get there but I I don't think that you know we're going too far in the wrong direction if we spend a few years fixing what's broken investing in the United States economy um, and uh, you know which I think enhances our our, our strength. Um, and, you know, I, I, there are some issues associated with trade, like labor dislocation, which Democrats and Republicans alike have been lousy um, at dealing with. And I think we need to be better at dealing with. And I think that's in part what Jake was getting at with um, foreign policy for the middle class and, and, and rethinking trade policy so that we thought of it in terms of the benefits for labor and not just the top line GDP or corporate benefits. Um, do I sound like a left wing ideologue?
3: <laughs> no, 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 you don't. I, I mean, I agree. I don't, I don't think it's either or. Um, but I, I do think the fact that the Biden administration is not preparing to renew the trade promotion authority, which as you know, is the fast track Uh, um, way of getting trade deals through and there is there's no slow track because if you have a bill that can be amended it'll be amended to death and then you have to renegotiate it with your partners and so it won't happen and so the fact that they're not asking for a renewal of trade promotion authority indicates they're not planning anything um in in that area i don't think it's either or um you know i i think um that uh a smart, a smart way of doing this would be simultaneously. And I think that's what, I think that's what America's partners and allies uh, are, are really quite strenuously hoping for. Um, and I, I don't think that the old fashioned sort of trade deal, the 20th century stuff that Trump was obsessed with, that has given trade a bad name, the industrial production sort of side of thing is where the administration should be focused. It should be focused on, um, uh, lower carbon intensive um, trade, um, border adjustment taxes on carbon intensive goods, it should be focused on climate change, and it should be focused on technology, which are not the red flags in Ohio, uh, you know, that steel and cars are. So I think it can do both. And I think it should, I think it should do both. Um, you know, that is the other half of what Biden's about. Um uh, is engaging China and, you know, nobody will benefit more than America prevailing internationally than the American middle class.
1: I should point out the United States has had a trade representative for about a week. So you could give her a chance too, also to do what she's sure. got to do. Um, Corey, what's on your mind other than Ed? <laughs> <laughs>
0: See, a couple of things are on my mind. One is um, the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which the Biden administration has now uh, adopted, continued the Trump administration's policy of um, refusing to waive the congressional legislation demanding that any company participating in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which brings Russian gas uh, through to Germany, uh, secondary sanctions will apply to any company. And I am of the view that, um, that continuing this policy is a bad idea for two reasons. First, because the deep cooperation the Biden administration needs from America's strongest allies in order to create a united front with regard to China um, is, uh, will be much more difficult to achieve if we continue to slap secondary sanctions on Germany, German companies and others over the Nord Stream pipeline And two, the Nord Stream pipeline is 95% completed. And so I think there's very little likelihood of successfully dissuading the German, Italian, and then the French consortium that's engaged in doing this. And a third reason I think we should finally let this go is that um, European energy markets have changed since we first were worried about over-reliance on Russian gas. They've diversified, they've uh, forced um, through regulation, a much more integrated European market where market forces are more dominant and therefore Russia has a lot less ability to be able to use gas as a political weapon So I think the Biden administration's making a mistake by continuing and suggesting, Secretary Blinken suggested in congressional testimony that they would take it even further. And I just think it's an idea whose time has passed. We ought to let it go and get on with other things we want to get
2: done.
1: What do you think, Rosa? Is Corey soft on Russia now?
2: I have no comment on that, Um, no. (laughs) I, wait a minute you're not even gonna defend me I no, no I did you need no defense Corey requires no defense right. it was a it was a frivolous charge with which I <laughs> I pungently disagreed
0: uh, I thank you my legal counsel. She's so um, pungent
1: today you are pungent above your weight <laughs>
0: oh, oh. I'm in favor of that David
2: thank you um you know I've, I was thinking about a couple of things, as Corey was talking, not not related, well, loosely. Wow,
1: that's um, pretty rude.
2: No, but you said to just they tell us what was on our minds. Oh, I see. Okay. Exactly, exactly. Um, um, one of which has to do with China, and in particular with the role or non-role of the Defense Department, Um, I think it seems pretty clear that the Biden administration wanted a defense department that would uh, speak only when spoken to, and um, no one seems to be speaking to them, Um, which in some ways, you know, is not the worst thing in the world, right? There's a lot of repair work that needs to be done at the defense department, and it's hard to do internal repair work when you're constantly being called for one crisis or another. Um, So I suspect that the Principals at DOD and the deputies are sort of relieved to have a little time to kind of get their act together, but but I do worry. You know, one of the arguments that that many many were making to Biden and his advisors, you know, during the campaign was, look, China is the pacing threat, um, and we're not ready. We're not keeping up. We don't we, you know we, we really are not keeping up um, and we have a relatively small window of time in which to make quite significant changes in not necessarily in the size of our investments altogether but in the nature of our investments in terms of uh, shifting away from some of the big expensive personnel uh, heavy uh, services quite right, frankly as well as some as well as some platforms that are now outmoded towards uh, the kinds of relatively higher tech stuff that is going to be more needed to in, in the event of any kind of China conflict. And it's not that clear that there's any real will um, on the part of the Biden administration to break the eggs that would have to be broken on the hill uh, to, to shift to recalibrate investments in those ways. Um, so that's one thing that's on my mind, is just the concern. I mean, Ed was, Ed was talking earlier, we were talking earlier about whether whether the Biden administration will sort of get it together to figure out not necessarily how to confront China, but but how to how to create a viable alternative to China. Um, When it comes to diplomacy and economics, um, I fear that in the in the military and defense realm as well, um, there's a lot of dithering going on and and a lot of rhetoric and not a lot of actual action um, or movement. Um, The other thing I was thinking about which is only related uh, in the sense that it too involves things that are mystifyingly not happening that should be be happening. And maybe this is something, Ed, that that you can comment on. Um, It's stunning to me how badly the EU has botched the vaccine rollout. And here we have the US and the UK, basically two basket cases when it came to COVID prevention right? I mean, we're embarrassing the US and the UK. Um, And yet the US and the UK have been doing quite well with vaccine rollout, uh, whereas the Europeans have been doing quite badly. And for those of us who opposed Trumpism and opposed Brexit, this is actually rather discouraging, right? The, 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 The EU, which we look to to have its act together, the EU, which we look to as a as an example of perhaps overly bureaucratic, but relatively sane uh, planning-oriented bureaucra- bureaucracy seems to have completely flubbed this one. And, and, and I'm interested to know what the rest of you make of that. Is this just bad luck? I mean, it's, it's at least a little bit bad luck, I guess, you know, in terms of betting on some of the wrong vaccines. But but it seems like it's more than just bad luck. And, and what, if anything, should we take away
3: from this?
1: So, Ed, there's a smorgasbord of things to respond to there.
3: I'd love to pick up on the vaccine thing. Um, Okay, go ahead. uh, Can I say one thing I didn't mention earlier about the reason why I'm sort of urging, uh, you know, the make haste slowly sort of line with Mm -hmm. Biden administration's global engagement is that China is looking to join the TPP. Um, Now, uh, you know, Japan and others um, are not gonna let it in unless, you know, um, the United States completely walks away. But if they do let China in eventually, and America isn't back in. That's kind of checkmate. Um, you know, this is the biggest ge- geopolitical trade group, um, uh, trade area in the world. It's, uh, it's it's not a light sort of a, a li- It's not something to be lightly dismissed. It's a very serious. Anyway, that was just something I should have mentioned earlier as, to bolster my my argument. Um, the European thing, you know, I think we what we should remember is, you know, the Pfizer vaccine partly was basically done in Germany. Um, AstraZeneca one was done in Oxford and then Moderna Johnson and Johnson done in the United States, all of these vaccines, whether on the continent or in the English speaking democracies were done with heavy public incentives and public investment. Um, so I think that's something we, we have in common, the tendency to say, well, UK us is the free market model and they therefore innovated better. And produced um, vaccines and rolled them out quicker is completely wrong all these vaccines are with massive heavy public subsidy and r d and we shouldn't forget that whichever country we're talking about the europeans unfortunately and this is such an unearned windfall for boris johnson but the europeans unfortunately you know because they didn't want to sort of compete with each other in a dog eat dog market contracted out the negotiate procurement negotiations to brussels which treated it like a trade negotiation um, you know, uh, where you can sort of wait months and months and months for a minor concession to get a dollar less on each vial or whatever it, or whatever the pricing is for vaccines when their real priority should have been speed, not, not price. Um, they sort of made every bureaucratic mistake you can think of. And, and Europe's now paying the price for it. And unfortunately, the benefit politically is going to the to the Brexiteers and to the, you know, the anti-Europeanists within other democracies inside the EU. It's terribly unfortunate, but um, utterly you know, predictable. That's, that's how bureaucracies um, negotiate, particularly if they're insulated from democratic accountability, as Brussels is. Um, uh, national governments don't negotiate like that because they get punished real time um, the EU is, you know, is insulated. That's its strength, but it's also, it's great weakness. It's the, the democratic deficit, um, is real.
1: I would add, by the way, just to throw in a, 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 side comment to that, that in the past couple of days, it's been revealed that the death toll, uh, to the virus in Mexico is now north of 400,000. Oh, uh, uh, and that... Uh, you know, there are a lot of places in the world where we're not actually sure how bad this has been. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in Brazil, yeah. it's almost certain they've been lying about this, mm-hmm. and, and it's a devastatingly high death toll there. In India, we have no idea what the death toll is, and it is much higher. Um, so, one of the things that colors the discussion about Europe is that there is at least a degree of transparency about what's going on there. And in, in some of these other places, and China, of course, is another example where, you know, we we don't we don't know how many people died of, of COVID in China, um, and so it's a it's just a, another another dimension of this. Corey, do you want to talk about anything that Ed or Rosa spoke of? Perhaps uh. perhaps Rosa's comment on the Defense Department, for example.
0: I agree with Reza's view on the Defense Department. I had initially feared that the Biden administration would um, substantially cut defense spending without uh, narrowing its strategic objectives. Uh, And I was pleased to see that the Biden administration, uh, their read of the national debt is there's insufficient uh there's insufficient inflationary pressure to restrict government spending right now therefore we can afford to just uh cut defense to leave defense nominally it, uh, at a reasonable top line it'll take a couple of percent of real cuts um to the defense Budget, But the problem that is gaping is that the current defense strategy is built on the expectation of three to five percent real growth year on year for the entirety of the time you execute the strategy. The Trump administration actually Congress in in deference to John McCain's passing. And with adroit management by Mac Thornberry in the House, um, gave the Trump administration two years of increased defense spending, and then turned it off. So we are accruing a 3% to 5% increased risk every single year that we cannot execute our strategy. That is, that we would lose a war if we had to fight it.
2: Corey, that is that that makes it sound even scarier than I was making it sound. Yikes! <laughs> and, and, and so, and, and if you follow that curve, in you know, in just about twenty years, we will cease to exist. <laughs>
0: Alternatively, <laughs> yes. we could actually bring our objectives into line with our spending. The Biden administration is going, is continuing but accelerating the growth of this gap between what we say we can do and what we are actually able to do. And what I think I have noticed about China and Russia in the last five or six years is that those authoritarian governments are actually pretty good at identifying the gap between what we say we're gonna do and what we're actually willing to muscle up to the bar and do. That's the story of Russia's intervention in Syria. That's a story of Russia's intervention in Libya. That's a story of Xi Jinping promising they weren't going to turn those islands into military bases. Um, And and so those gaps are getting expensive for the United States and we ought to close them.
1: The gap that seems to me that needs to be closed is the in the strategy, not in the spending.
0: You, the equation works both directions.
1: No you no, can I, raise no I am under-
0: spending <laughs> or constrain your, what you are asking uh, the force to be able to do. but we got to do one or the other of those two things. I agree, David.
1: One of the things that I, was, I would I, take
0: it even further. I'm sorry to, to be Khrushchev banging my, my shoe on the table. but um, it is crazy that we permit the Department of Defense, to promulgate a public strategy contingent on resources that are not available to them. We ought actually to force DOD to produce a genuine strategy which is connecting resources to objectives instead of living in the magical world where defense spending is gonna go up without having any political commitment to the execution of
1: that. No kidding. If it were a company, you would ask them to produce three strategies, one with 30 percent less spending, one with 15 percent less spending, and one, you know, on the track that we're on and see what we get. you know? Uh, but yeah. we're, we're not there. I didn't, one of the things that I think we've been particularly bad at over the course of time is uh, coming up with uh, a good uh, return on investment analysis of the money we've spent on defense.
2: Or foreign policy altogether, right? I mean, how do you measure this?
1: No, well, it's true. You know why I was thinking of it? And again, I'm going to bring this up because I know it's going to bring a smile to to Corey's face. But I was thinking about this big infrastructure bill that's going to be announced on Wednesday. And so what did I do? Where did I go, Corey? Well, of course, the first (laughs) thing I looked at was the Erie Canal. um, my
0: whole background is smiling at this david not
1: just me um and and you know the erie canal was an idea that came up actually in the middle of the 18th century um and 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 it percolated for a while and you know thomas jefferson said that's crazy to spend the amount of money that you would spend on this crazy big infrastructure project and then some guy named holly who was Uh, in debtor's prison, wrote a series of letters explaining why the Erie Canal would actually be helpful. And the person who read them, the governor of New York, DeWitt Clinton, said, huh, that's an interesting idea. And so he launched into this thing without the support of the United States government. And um, in the course of 17 years, built this canal, connecting New York to the um, Great Lakes.
2: Frontier.
1: And to think the, right. think very clever called... to
2: begin and end this podcast with a canal story, David, by the way. Yeah, well, that's the way,
1: it's, <laughs> the way, that's the way we do this every time. And interestingly, two things resulted from this. One, New York City became the biggest city in the United States as a result of this. It was not the biggest city in the U.S. before that. And within 15 years of building the Erie Canal, 35% of all U.S. trade went through the Erie Canal wow um you know which is just one of these stories where you know you could think gee there was an investment (laughs) but by the way you know there was shares were sold and and you know and 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 it was paid for but it paid for itself within the first year of its being built and it transformed the entire country so you know, and we don't often do that kind of basic analysis with how the government works. Like, are we getting a, That's good
0: a great analysis, David? Bravo.
1: Well, I, I knew anything that was pre-1850 would warm the cockles of your heart. Um, well, um, does anybody else have anything they want to add to this? Because we're coming to the very end of our time here, you know, and uh, for today anyway.
2: No, but um, I would like to hear you sing the Erie Canal.
1: Oh, yeah. I got a mule and her name is Sal, 15 miles on the Erie Canal.
2: Right. But sing. Yeah, that's, that's as close <laughs> to me singing.
1: I'm, a, I'm married to an opera singer. I do oh, not. you think
2: it averages out across your marriage? Yes, it does.
1: <laughs> believe me. And only because she's a very good opera singer does it <laughs> average out. Um, but Ed, can you believe that in the United States of America, we were tr- in like elementary school. We were taught to sing a song about the Erie Canal.
2: Low bridge, everybody down.
3: I think that's I think Low bridge, because
1: we're coming, coming to the
3: town, right? We, we, can, can, you, can you finish it?
0: Rosa yeah. clearly can.
2: No, I, I can't. <laughs> I, can, I can remember the meter of the
1: next little bit, but not the words, sadly. Did, did they teach you songs, Ed, in, 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 in your school about infrastructure?
3: I think that if the Channel Tunnel had been built, maybe we would have been you know taught a nursery rhyme about it, but yeah, I'm older than the Channel Tunnel.
2: It's actually quite astonishing david i will i will I will defend you and buttress your point um It is actually quite astonishing the number of early American folk songs that were related to infrastructure development, railroad songs uh you know uh uh all, all the, I mean, not only Erie canal, but but yeah, you know, I've been working on the railroad and, and all of our stories. They're very much about uh, infrastructure projects.
3: So yeah.
0: Ed, what about London bridges falling
1: down? Well, that's true. <laughs>
3: but, but that's the bad news infrastructure That's right? John Henry. <laughs> with yeah, the Dick whole John Jones. Henry
1: thing. I mean, John Henry is like this hero yeah. Although the, it, it doesn't end well for him. Well, yeah. or, for, or for Casey Jones, for that matter. But, um, but. Okay.
0: So, so, Deep State Radio nerds, we have finally hit an American historical subject on which both David and Rosa know infinitely more than <laughs> I do. And I'm standing in awed appreciation. How do you not know these of things, both of didn't,
2: didn't you go to kindergarten?
0: I grew up in the great golden state of California. We missed oh, a bunch of this stuff. So.
2: Okay, right. And I don't think they do it anymore. I don't think my children know any of these, except to the extent that I sang them, because I don't think schools today do this anymore.
1: I I bet you, Corey, that you had a whole section in school in elementary school on the golden spike.
2: Yes, the golden
0: spike. A whole lot of gold rush stuff generally. Yes. No, no, no but know, I mean
1: the I mean the 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 rail, transcontinental railroad and the golden You spike. know,
0: they actually have the Golden Spike in the museum at the Leland Stanford Junior University because <laughs> that school was founded to whitewash the crimes of one of the big four uh, robber barons of the railroad, Leland Stanford.
1: Yeah. Well, that's you know that's a it's America though, and I, I get you know it's a very interesting subtext here because so much of the mythology of the America is infrastructure, infrastructure and Earth. building the country related.
0: That's <laughs> um, a nice point, David.
3: You know, well, it
1: is. There, you go. there you go. We've accidentally stumbled on a nice point. I think
3: we should have infrastructure week on DSR one week. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sure it'll turn out just like it did for the Trump administration <laughs> on a regular day. Um All right, everybody. Well, it's good to talk to you. It's good to see you. um And uh, it's spring, folks. You know, that's, that's promising. Yay! And uh, the, the, uh, In New York state, by the way, vaccine is busting out all over. I was just going to say New York state but starting next week, I think all adults are eligible for the vaccine. And according to the Biden administration, by the beginning of April, 75% of all adults in the US will be eligible for the vaccine.
2: Isn't that like in two days?
1: What could within the next week or so? Yeah, it's pretty impressive. uh anyway uh not that you'll get it in washington no
3: (laughs) i was about to say for for me age 52 with no vaccine in sight april the first will be april fool's day um, (laughs) because i'm nowhere nearer to it as far as i can tell (laughs)
1: um well i hope that i hope that uh is dealt with swiftly in any event thank you everybody and if you want to know more of what we've got coming up including podcasts in the next week or so that are conversations with representative ted lou we've got one next week with representative eric swalwell we got one i think this week or next week with senator chris murphy i bet um, all of them are going to want to
2: talk about infrastructure david they're
1: going to want to sing yeah uh, and Eric have
2: been working on the railroad
1: yeah exactly um well we'll see if we can get them all to do that uh so go to the dsrnetwork.com to find out more about what we've got coming If you want to be a member, click on membership, and uh, it's real easy, and you get to participate in all of our interactive episodes, which are increasing also. So do that, stay healthy, and we'll see you again real soon. Bye-bye.